Hey there, folks. Good morning and welcome to Classic Camera Revival. And this is our first episode in December. And this morning we are joined by two special guests all the way from Germany. So let's hear from them. Hey there. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto-Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Okay, so it's no secret that we here at Classic Camera Revival are, well, we're fans and critics of the Hasselblad series, so we decided to dedicate an entire his, um, episode to the history of the iconic 500 series, or as it's now called today, the V system of Hasselblad. Now, Hasselblad, it's interesting that they actually got started as a Swedish company. Well, they're still a Swedish company. But um, they imported household goods, sewing machines, travel accessories. And it was only the chance meeting with um, George Eastman um, that they got into photography. And initially, they thought this wouldn't really make any money. Um, but they they brought in all sorts of uh, Eastman Dry Place and eventually Kodak Film into uh, Sweden. And were basically the sole distributor in Sweden for uh, many, many years. Um, building cameras actually didn't get into play until um, a German surveillance plane was downed in Sweden, and the surveillance camera was turned over to Victor Hasselblad, who proceeded to build a couple of Swedish um, cameras, um, surveil aerial surveillance cameras, during World War II. And of course, those cameras were the foundation of what would become the 1600F. And Marwin, take it away. Hi. <laughs> I can I can take one and, and maybe you want to hear the sound of it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, are you going to do that right I now? Or? I, I get it. Okay. Get he's he's running and getting his his camera right now because like all things Swedish, he's also a Volvo car collector, and uh, all, he's a huge fan of the noises that all these Swedish things make. So, um, <laughs> Volvo, not Saab. Oh, gosh. Oh, you're gonna get into a big fight now. Oh, boy. <laughs> Although I prefer Volvo because Saabs have always been a little odd. You know, who, who puts the ignition on the transmission tunnel? Like, really? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Bill, I, I have some bad news for you. Um, the guy who designed Saab helped yes. design the Hasselblad. Yeah, that I'm not. Well, that, that explains, explains a, a ton of things. Yeah, that explains <laughs> a ton of things. Exactly. <laughs> Sazon Sixten was his name, and uh, he also did some vacuum cleaners for Electrolux. So uh, he was, he made some very kind, very interesting uh, industrial designs. Hasselblad and the Saab design. <laughs> oh, here comes the, the camera, though. Just hear that. Oh, lovely. That is the sound nice. of the 1600F, and especially if you... Um, yeah, it's a thousand F. If you just change now the time, you can hear that click. Mm. That's the sound of the thousand F. Boys so, and their toes. That's yeah. all I can say. 
<laughs> so, Marwin, tell us a little bit about the background of the uh, 1600F. Well, um, in, um, you just already explained that the basics of uh, the base of the Hasselblad uh, designs were military and reconnaissance cameras they did for the Swedish military based on some German designs they just captured during uh, before World War II or during World War II. And this modular design was taken to um, a, a more, yeah, civil application to use it for photography. And after the Second World War, everybody was really uh, searching for an alternative uh, and people started to get consumer products. So the um, so what they did in 1948, they introduced the 1600F as the first modular camera with Kodak lenses at the time. And um, the camera had a focal plane shutter, which was uh, very different from the 500 series we, we talked about earlier, and um, it was the it was a very expensive camera. Also on top of that, and it was also a camera with a lot of problems. It was definitely a prototype they sold, and not not there's not really two or three cameras you find that are nearly the same because they were just really trying to improve the camera during production, and it was a big disaster for Hasselblad. So just a few years after they launched the 1600F. The 1000F followed with a lot of improvements, but both cameras were just made in very little amounts, 3,500 approximately of the 1600F and um, around 10,000 of the 1000F. Now, the 1000F is really what helped get Hasselblad into the international market. Um, modern Photography, um, an American photo magazine, picked up a copy of the thousand F and wrote a glowing review about it. Bert Stern, for example, used it. Yep. So some some pictures he did. Uh, they're very famous till today. And the thousand F was definitely an interesting modular camera because it just gave the first time photographers the possibility in the medium format to change lenses, change backs, change viewfinders, and you had really it's not only the camera itself; it was the entire system. Um, which which just gave studio photographers uh, possibilities to work like they did with the large format cameras, but with better materials. Like um, uh, and it was light. It's also light, and um, it, it's a nice, beautiful design camera and a very clever design. Especially as you could also use the backs for the thousand f and the viewfinders. You just can use them on modern Hasselblads. Let's say modern up to the 500 or the 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 um, the V series. It just fits with it. Oh wow! I didn't realize that. So you just can exchange the viewfinders. Um, you can change the backs. That works mm -hmm. with a modern camera too. Mm -hmm. oh, very I just did a. I did last in 2016 for Tokina. I had my 1000F with me and I went to the Hasselblad stand and I asked them if they just can attach the digital back and it worked. So, oh. <laughs> so, so wow. you can see a 1956 camera minus from 1956. And there is definitely, um, that is the beauty of that design that for a long, long period, you just could interchange material. The only thing what you can't do is you can't um, use the lenses. The amount uh, of the thousand F is totally different than later uh, the mount of the V series, and also the um, and also the F, the focal plane shutter series, the two thousand and the two hundred series. That doesn't work, even not with an adapter. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Now um, the five hundred series came after the um, one thousand, 
And um, Hasselblad took a big risk because they were putting a uh, leaf shutter into the lens in an era where leaf shutter cameras were considered the cheap ones. But um, they made it work. And again, Marwin, they, um, they leveraged the modularity of it and the um, ability to, um, to use some of the old accessories they had. Well... Um, well, I mean, you mean for the thousand F or uh, or the thousand F to the five hundred C? Yeah. Well, the only thing what you could use is from the five hundred C and the thousand F are the the backs, the mm -hmm. viewfinders. Well, let's say the 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 strap that works, but um, that's all. Most of the accessories do not work with the uh, with the thousand F and the five hundred C. Okay. Right. So the lenses are not interchangeable. No. No. Um... But the lenses are really what help help made yes. the camera. You had these yes. brilliant Zeiss optics yes. um, coming up from well, Germany in the post-war. But at the beginning, they started with Kodak. With, yep. And uh, what happened was that Kodak had, well, definitely the highest quality available at the time, um, but also the highest prices. So the reason why they switched to Carl Zeiss was they were cheaper, especially post-war Germany was a... Um, yeah, uh, low, uh, Bombs back into the stone ages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was, it, they had a good quality, but, yes. um, the wages were absolutely much lower than in the United States at the time. Makes sense. So it was also a financial question to use Carl Zeiss lenses. And at the very, very beginning, there were also some kind of there was a dispute between Carl Zeiss East Germany and Carl Zeiss West Germany because after the war they had two Carl Zeiss. Mm -hmm. And some of the names uh, of different planar or opton or all these names, there were kind of patent disputes between the East German Carl Zeiss and the West German Carl Zeiss. So I think Hasselblad also didn't want to get into that trouble until things were just uh, settled and uh, they knew with whom to deal at the moment. Also, another Absolutely. fun fact with that, when Hasselblad was trying to sell into the American market right after the Second World War, going in with Zeiss lenses would have been tricky, whereas Kodak being an American company, and that was a big deal back then, uh, especially if you want to get something like government contracts, you needed American equipment. So having an American lens on it, like say an Ektar lens, it's uh, it would be mu be a much easier sale in post-war America. Now, granted, yeah. go, ahead, go ahead twenty years, then it would be different. Yeah, mm. yeah, I know that makes sense too. Yeah, but uh, at the beginning, really, and because you know, we have to see the the sixteen hundred F was introduced, I think, in forty eight in New York, and mm. well, forty eight in Germany was really a kind of difficult time. So. Yes. Uh, uh, so it was the best decision. And by the way, the quality of the uh, Kodak lenses at the time were definitely world standard. And I think the best that you could get. Even today, if you just try to find a Kodak Ektar lens uh, for your Hasselblad 1000F or 1600F, they are by far more expensive than, for example, a Zeiss Planar. If you just see the Zeiss lenses for the 1600 and with the 1600F or 1000F mount, they are, well, yeah, expensive, but by far cheaper than um, uh, a used um, Kodak lens because you find less of them. And, well, there are a lot of collectors behind them. Absolutely. It's, no, ironic, um, it, it's ironic to think of 
Zeiss being the cheaper alternative. That's not something <laughs> we're used to. Yeah. Yeah, you find a lot in the United States. I got my uh, lens from Anchorage, so uh, via eBay. So it was difficult to find wow. some in Germany because especially the 1000F and the 1600F were not sold that much in Germany. You couldn't find it here because it was definitely an extreme expensive camera. Mm. Interesting. Um, so after the 500C, the 500C really helped make Hasselblad a household name. I had one for m many years. I actually still have it sitting here. It is in dire need of repair and I plan on divesting myself of that system soon. Um, just, I've stopped getting along with it. So oh. it's just best to just, you know, pass it along to someone who needs it. Um, and honestly, they're great cameras. I produced tons of wonderful images with it. I was always blown away by the optics, especially the um, 80 millimeter 2.8 planar lens. Um, the 50 millimeter Distagon, it just, it became too expensive to uh, maintain because, again, you need those factory trained technicians to be able to uh, repair them well. So, um, but the uh, 500C was replaced by the, um, by the 500CM and John, you know the 500CM quite well. Yes, uh, I, I got one uh, a few years ago. It was it was the year then they sort of the, the, all the photographers we were hanging with. You know, everyone seemed to have a Hasselblad except me, so that was good enough reason <laughs> for me. Um, but uh, just to pick up on the point of it being a money pit, you can drop a lot of money. Because I I bought one and uh, turned out the the planar lens had been dropped at some point and never. Yeah white worked so you know uh i i think i bought that camera twice in terms of what i put into it <laughs> but uh but we're lucky that, that we that we're lucky that we have a guy we call hasselblad joe in toronto who's factory trained and does amazing work on uh on so he he fixed up uh, my hasselblad and like for me the reason i love the hasselblad uh, is not so much the ergonomics, but uh, I'm deeply in love with the 50 millimeter Distagon lens. Uh, except for portraits, it's uh, my favorite lens, any brand, any platform, any format. And uh, I, I find if I'm ever going through a blah period in my photography, I go out with the Hasselblad and the 50 and I get re-energized. And I've also been trying recently, like last year I got uh, the 250, which uh, oh, was nice. an inter interesting lens. Uh, optically, it's been designed to be, you know, very, very good, wide open at, at 5.6. So uh, if you're shooting with uh, fast enough film and you actually get a sunny day in Toronto, of course, how often does that happen? But if you get a, a sunny day in Toronto, uh, it's... It is very it's very usable for uh, for handhold portraiture, so mm. I'm very happy with the the kit I have. I just wish the backs weren't quite so fiddly, and uh, like it seems that the backs that need constant uh, care and feeding to keep working properly. Well, the five point six to fifty is very interesting because it's also a very very old lens, especially the the series of the thousand f and the sixteen hundred f. The five point six you got 
at the time, the 250, is the same optical design that uh, your lens has. There was no change at all. And um, it was an excellent lens when it was designed at the time. <laughs> well, I love mine. <laughs> now, Hasselblad is also part of a elite club among cameras. Nikon's in it. Ansco Minolta's in it. And these are cameras that have been a part of the American Space Program. And I've had a chance to go to Space Center Houston. I've seen a chest-mounted Hasselblad um, that actually went up to the moon and uh, came back. And we actually have um, Karis here. I got that right? Yeah, that was really close. It's Karis. <laughs> Okay, sorry. I might be of that background, but I can't get those guttural sounds. I've never been able to pass that. (laughs) Right. Well, at least you didn't say cherries, which is actually my least favorite variation. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So please take it away. Uh, Yeah, well, I wrote an article for our publication, Photo Classic International. Um, We were talking about the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And obviously, since we are a publication that deals with photography, um, a lot of it was centered on the NASA Hasselblad cooperation. And uh, like you guys have been mentioning, there was some background of work between Kodak and Zeiss and Hasselblad. But honestly, it seems from all the reports that I read that um, the the Hasselblad inclusion in this elite club really came because uh, Walter Wally Shura, um, when he was in the Mercury space program, he just had a consumer, his personal camera, he took up with him and took out and made some pictures with it. And um, I think that a lot of people suddenly realized at that point what a huge boost this these kind of pictures were going to be for the propaganda aspect of the entire space program because um, they were beautiful pictures. And um, so then they started looking at the at the Hasselblad cameras and obviously NASA noticed the, the quality and the reliability of the Hasselblad system. And uh, so this is what started that, that whole cooperation. Um, but I think it's, it's just so interesting that, that Wally Shura just said, oh, I think I'm going to take my camera up, you know, in space. <laughs> and, and, and that's how the whole thing started. Um, but for Apollo 11, they knew it was going to be a completely, completely different set of circumstances. Actually, you know, taking these cameras onto the surface of the moon and that they would need to do... Um, an awful lot of research and rethinking in advance of that. So um, one of the one of the first things that happened was that they completely stripped down the camera and tried to get like every tiny you know bit of weight out that they could. That's what they did with all their equipment. Um, so I thought it was interesting that after this whole process of stripping down the cameras and making them as you know low weight as possible, a bunch of the cameras they ended up with were um, EL, the, the electric motor um, mod- models, um, you know, the, the 500 EL um, yep. data camera. But if you think about it, it really makes sense because 
I mean, these guys, they were not professional photographers and they had an awful lot to think about besides taking photos. So um, it just made sense to have um, as simple a workflow as they could. So so that was really a, a great option to have for them, that, that electric motor camera. And also they had this, you know, the huge gloves and, and the camera was strapped to the suit. And um, you don't want to be trying to do, you know, manual frame advance and stuff it's like that. It's more point and shoot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a very expensive point and shoot. It's a very expensive point and shoot, yeah. But, um, yeah, so the these were completely redesigned. I mean, not completely, but they were really overhauled cameras that were, that were taken up there. Um, quite different from the consumer models at the time. Um, the unit for the EVA, the extravehicular activity, was anodized because it needed to um, be able to reflect the sunlight for when they were in the direct sunlight. Um, and they also need to take out all the usual lubricants because they would have just boiled off and clouded the lens and made all sorts of problems. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they, yeah, they had to find all sorts of interesting, you know, problems came up when they were thinking about what photography in space was going to be like. Um, they also knew that they wanted to have at least one camera as the data camera, which would have a Rousseau plate on it. And that Rousseau plate is the one that has the those cross hatches that we're all kind of familiar with from looking at the, uh, the lunar photography. And that makes it um, easy for scientists to get the distance down very accurately. Okay. Um, but one of the problems with the Rousseau plate um, was that if you use for scientific photography on the earth, um, when the when the film is wound, it produces static electricity, right? Now on earth, this is not a problem because the humidity in the air conducts it to the middle frame and it disperses it. But um, in the EVA Hasselblad, the, the film was actually guided by raised edges of the Rousseau plate, which is glass. Now, glass is not a good conductor, and there was no humidity, so um, they had to specially coat this Rousseau plate with a transparent layer that would conduct that electricity away from the plate and the film and take it out to the metal frame, because otherwise it might have sparked and, and ruined the film. Um, wow. So, I mean, there were just so many little challenges like that, that they had to think through so many details of what the differences were going to be in space. And uh, they worked together um, with uh, sites and with um, uh, Kodak very closely to make sure that all the different um, things were going to work together in that environment. And it was just a tremendous feat of engineering involving literally thousands of people to make those photographs that we all know and love possible. And um, I guess everybody was actually quite nervous about it until <laughs> the very the very last second um, because there were just so many things that they assumed were going to be that way. But, you know, it was the first time anybody had done it. So, um, yeah, I guess there was a, a big celebration in Sweden when when they got the news that all the uh, all the photographs had gotten back and they were developed and they looked good. Um, there's like this press packet that from the time that was so sweet it you know described all these people in Sweden lighting up cigars and you know having a big celebration that uh, that it all worked that the way that they had hoped that it would there's also one interesting thing to mention uh, maybe you all guys know Yobo the uh, 
the manufacturer for developing tanks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, their tanks were used to develop the films. Um, well, very, very long. They had a long cooperation with NASA, even till the end of the Mir space program. They had even a developing tank on the Mir space station. So uh, they are very proud, too, that they were part of that. Um, I just had a few years ago uh, a discussion with uh, Johannes Bockemühl Sr., and he was at the time invited. But all companies who were involved in that project were invited for a big party and he just said that uh, he and Hasselblad had to make a speech um, so also Jobo is part of the space program to get the pictures wow that is so cool I can only imagine the pressure on the darkroom text developing the film <laughs> yeah oh, like, like oops I put the blicks in first silly me oh no that would not be good well, Karis has there a small story about yeah. that, what she found also. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a very little known story that actually it was a very good thing that some technician went on, you know, the thousand percent uh, security route when they were developing and they cut off the film leader to test the filming, film developing machine first um, instead of just running, you know, a film first because... Um, there was a problem with the developing machine. Oh, and wow. that film leader was actually destroyed. So um, this is not a very well-known story. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people are not really excited about um, confirming that. So I didn't actually uh, refer to it too much in my piece. But um, it seems quite likely that, that that's true, that we almost lost an entire roll of film. From, so that's for the, the cons 11. conspiracy theory people. Yeah. They, there was no need to do the photos again on Area 51. So it's... Right. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, folks. <laughs> now, um, James Lee in our group has um, actually a, a very modern um, version of the um, V system. So, well, James. It's modern-ish. I have a 503CX, I guess, which is probably, I guess, the first generation of uh, Hasselblad adding electronics to their camera. Um, and I guess it's a set of electronics that I never use, because all, all I think all the 503CX has, essentially, is um, a TTL uh, flash metering system that, I guess, just meters um, a European standard flash output. Um, I personally have never... Uh, <laughs> Never used a flash on my Hasselblad kit, and probably never will. Um, but uh, all I can say about the 503CX is, you know, it's pretty much, um, uh, I guess, a, a 500CM with a little, with a few tweaks on it. Um, I like, like John as well. Um, although I have, uh, I think I have three lenses for my my kits. I have the the 50 Distagon, um, the 80 Planar, and um, the 150 sonar, and uh, it's really only the 50 and the 150 that live on my camera. Um, and interestingly, in in North America in the 80s and 90s, when um, when the uh, the 500 series cameras were quite popular here, uh, most professional photographers uh, they would dump their 80 uh, 80 mil uh, lens, and everybody put the 150 on, and that seemed to be the industry standard for commercial photographers. So you know what we find today is that is it's very difficult for just to buy a standalone uh, 80 millimeter lens. They're very hard to find. And I guess 
part of that is that they all go with the kits. But, um, uh, you know, interestingly, with my camera, I had my camera torn down and rebuilt completely by a Hasselblad Joe here. And the difference in the shutter mechanism and the sound to an unserviced versus a fully CLA, fully serviced, fully functional Hasselblad is completely night and day. And, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, uh, there's two camps with uh, with the Hasselblad system. There's people that just absolutely love it, and that's all they shoot. And then there's people that find fault with everything ergonomically, uh, functionally, uh, et cetera. But, you know, for me, the Hasselblad is is my favorite, absolute favorite medium for my format camera. It's a go-to, and as what like what John said, whenever I'm in a slump photographically, I throw that 50 millimeter square format lens, and everything just kind of works. Nice, That's nice. Like a great, yeah, a great relationship to have with your with your gear. <laughs> but you should try that. Uh, there, there was a flash. Uh, from Hasselblad, which was originally uh, a Metz flash, which was as you got you got it as a they just relabeled it as Hasselblad that works with the SCA adapter from from um, from Metz, and you oh. could really do the TTL flash metering with it, and um, especially when you just do backlight or kind of interesting light setups, uh, it makes sense to use it. So just I would get that flash in your case and just try that one time. Okay, yeah, I will. <laughs> oh, James is going shopping. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on eBay right now. Oh, you'll have bought one by the end of the day. <laughs> and, end of the end of the recording. Yeah. <laughs> just well, you know, check it's, it. It's, it's surprisingly, these hammer, I, I don't... <laughs> uh, these hammerhead a flash from a flash from uh, these pro. You, you know them with the with the grip and um, it's the Mats 45 yeah. CT. Yeah. But they had a special series for Hasselblad with the Hasselblad logo on it. Okay. And the good thing about it is I just just had a I had an article in the German Photo Classic um, uh, a few months ago, and I called Metz in Germany, and they still service it. So if you have a problem, you can send your Hasselblad to your Hasselblad Joe and uh, the Hasselblad Flash to Metz in Germany. They will service it. <laughs> okay, good to know. Yeah, I know, you know, I think I don't think a lot of people realize how many accessories Hasselblad actually put out in the market. Yeah, <laughs> thousands, thousands. It, it is truly the first end-to-end, -end, 360 degree complete uh, system camera. They did it before Nikon. Yeah, but by the way, it's also one of the reasons uh, Role, they with their SL uh, um, model, which they brought out the medium format 6x6, which also was an SLR with interchangeable lenses, um, mm -hmm. they came just too late. Uh, yes. I don't know if you guys know the, the agreement. There was a gentleman agreement between uh, with, with the Rolai founder and uh, Hass Victor Hasselblad. They just met. There's one picture where you see um, Heidecker with his uh, TLR Rolai flex and Hasselblad with his, uh, I think at the time it was a thousand F. And they just both said, you know, I will not interfere in your TLR market and you will not interfere in mine. And I think that gentleman agreement lost was a bit too long hold by Rolay. That's why they definitely lost the market. And well, I think I'm a, I'm aware of that gentleman's agreement. And again, I'm a big Rolay fan. Yeah, I used I used to own a 500 CM, but I traded it for a second Rolay 
this okay. past spring. <laughs> well, uh -huh. More on that later, but it's it's at a new home that's being appreciated. So what happened was, I think the the Victor Hasselblad and the Roly uh, and uh, Victor Hasselblad and the uh, the gentleman uh, from Frank and Heideke, they it was a personal friendship, and I think that was the thing. When that agreement ended, it was the next generation that yeah. ended that agreement because so once you know, uh, I believe it's the, the high, uh, Mr. Heidecker passed on his son kind of said, Oh, we need to, we need a part of this market share because, you know, Hasselblad has sort of essentially owned it in Europe. And again, and over in Japan, Bronica's making noises with their kind of clone. But none of think about it. What you, none of them were that successful like the Hasselblad, and that's maybe no. the reason why Mamiya went for the RB67, which was the only success camera in the modular system, because they had mm -hmm. to reinvent that medium format and to put a new idea into it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the, I think the, the, RB, the RB and the RZ series, that had a lot of traction with uh, pro photographers out there as well. Yeah. In fact, I heard a little fun fact how many of you remember that Rolling Meadow um, screen saver that Microsoft had way, way back when with XP? Windows XP. Yeah, yeah yep. that was shot on a on a RB67. Yeah, and yeah. Napa Valley. Yeah. Yeah, cool. It looks horrible now. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. It would. It, it's incredibly dated. <laughs> and also fire. Um, oh yeah, like the valley itself is not looking very good at the moment. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Well, over the course of this episode, we've been hearing um, names of uh, publications: Silver Grain Classic, Photo Classic International, and that is where our guests actually work. So, let us know what is the history of Silver Grain Classic and uh, Photo Classic International. Well, let's see. Uh, you say you talk. You have the nicer voice. Oh, I have the. Nicer oh, voice. come on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just throw this right onto my lap. Okay, I can handle it. It's all right. Um, no, Mavan has been writing for the German Photo Classic publication for seven years now. Well, since two thousand twelve, yeah. we started with that. Yeah. Right. Um, and this was a publication that, when it started, everybody said, "Okay." How can you get any more crazy than this at the time when, you know, 2012, when digital was just like the thing, they came out with a print magazine about analog photography, you know, and everybody said, are you crazy? You know, that's going to last two issues and then you'll be gone. But it's still going strong today. And uh, there was definitely um, a very good market for a lot of people were very appreciative of having something in their hand rather than just on the screen. And there were a lot of people who were convinced that film photography was not going to go the way of the dinosaur. And um, so that was a very successful publication. And um, what happened was that there were quite a few people who were starting to ask um oh, I saw this great magazine and I looked at it, but I don't speak German. Are you planning to bring out an English language version of it at some time? And, uh, well, this idea definitely caught on with, with Mavan. And uh, we had known each other through some other photography projects that we had been doing together. And 
he recruited me to help with the Kickstarter um, setup and also the writing for the magazine. And so, yeah, we did, uh, I think the first time we did a Kickstarter, we were not successful with it. Um, yeah, it was actually, it was, it was, it was a pretty bad experience. It was a <laughs> poorly conceived and, um, but we, we learned an awful lot from it, including the fact that there are a lot of people who are actually very, very excited about the idea, just that we had set up our Kickstarter badly. So, uh, we, we rethought the idea, did the Kickstarter again. And the second Kickstarter, we got 300% of the amount that we needed. And, uh, that was over a year ago. We've just put out issue four, 2020, which is our fifth issue. And um, it's been, it's kind of a crazy ride, honestly, trying to do it all with um, a very small staff, <laughs> but um, we love it. It's been a wonderful journey of getting to know a lot of fantastic artists and digging deeper into topics you know, like Hasselblad and NASA and things like that. Um, and it's been very successful. We're growing and uh, just really enjoying all the connections that we make, like with you guys. Bill, you, you've you actually received a copy of Photo Classic International. Yes, I have a few copies. And yes, they're not cheap publications. Uh, you're looking at, oh, I think... Uh, it comes out to about 30 Canadian dollars per issue. And that's not too bad. No, but you're getting almost a photo book, to be honest. And I, I showed them to a friend of mine, and she looked at them going, Yes, some educational institutions use them as reference material, mm. <laughs> which is yeah. it's kind of crazy. And it, it's funny because you're you're a worldwide publication. There's actually an American analog photography magazine. They just uh, they don't even ship worldwide. They they don't even. I don't even think they ship to Canada, which is kind of stupid. <laughs> but they've got like you know retail partners in Europe and a retail partner in Asia, and it's like, what? You can't set, ship it north. Like, how hard is it to throw it in a, in a padded envelope already? Like, whereas you, it's like, yes, yeah. we ship worldwide, and we don't care. We want to reach as many people as possible, and. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I, it, it, like I, I'm right now, I'm probably buying issue by issue. Like at some point, I'll probably just spring for a for a subscription. <laughs> well, that's yeah, funny. That's, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> James, next next thing he's doing right now. <laughs> oh, I, I already found a flash on eBay. <laughs> when does it arrive? Well, I didn't take long. <laughs> it was only $119. Oh, yeah, for uh, the uh, what is it here? It's a uh, uh, 300 series or something like that. Oh, wow! But uh, but the magazine, though, I, I've I've also purchased a couple standalone issues, not only because uh, my uh, camera collection has been featured in one of them, but uh, uh <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it is an it, it's not a magazine. It, it's it's a photo book, and it's definitely worth uh, uh, more than what I paid for it. And uh, I, I'm I'm hoping that you're uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, of popularity and subscriptions going up because it is. Uh, it I think it's one of those uh, things in the film community. It's definitely I would uh, put it in the in the category of being a catalyst of growth. 
And um, it really, I think, will inspire a lot of people to get back in touch um, with their film roots if, if they are old folks like us. Um, or, uh, you, who are you calling old? Uh, the <laughs> guys I'm calling old because I've all met you. <laughs> uh, and, I, and we've all told each other to collectively get off each other's lawns. Um, <laughs> nice. But it's definitely, I think, inspiring for people that are new to uh, the world of film photography because the the just the quality and, and the and the articles and, and the imagery that's featured in in this magazine are just incredible. So kudos to you guys. It's it's an in, incredible. Uh, uh, publication. And if I could understand German, I would probably get a few of the German uh, versions as well. Thank you very much. And it's it's so nice for us yeah. to hear you talking like that, because that's really exactly what we had in mind when we started. Um, we wanted to have something that was more of a journal or a, a photo book, um, something that you can collect and keep on your shelf and refer back to the articles we have a series of articles on technique that kind of build on each other, but we also have just a lot of really inspirational portfolios, and we try to get them printed at the very highest quality. Um, one of, I'm not going to say who, but one of our contributing portfolio um, photographers said that the public, the reproductions we did for him were better than the ones he got for his photo book. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Uh, there yeah, you go. We were, yeah, we were really happy about that. Um, and we really, um, Mavan goes to every single printing and is there to help adjust the, you know, the quality and make sure this black is okay and all the, you know, everything is really working well at the printers. We're also very aware of the, the wide spectrum of people that we have in our analog community. And it's very important to us that we really cover everybody. Mm. Because we've got over 40 countries now that we ship to. Um, and we have. Hopefully, Antarctica. Yes, next it's very exciting. We have Hopefully. every continent except our Antarctica. And a copy of our magazine is going with the photographer to Antarctica in a few months. So then we'll have all the continents covered. Very exciting. Nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> But if, if anybody knows someone on the ISS, we would give a <laughs> uh, we would give a free subscription to the astronauts if they would like to have one. Exactly. Well, yeah. she's she's uh, not uh, she's no longer like a, a an active astronaut, but uh, the Canadian astronaut Roberta Bondar uh, oh. is a big Hasselblad fan. Oh, ah, I see. Yeah, she does a lot of landscape photography. Uh, oh, cool. I've seen her work. It's something worth. Uh, Sort of digging up and maybe even interviewing. Oh, great! And she's That's also a, a thank you. And she's also a friend of Hasselblad Joe. Oh. Ah, okay. <laughs> and you're wondering who for for those in the studio for 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 Caris Car and Marwan whose house his name is Joe Vieira. <laughs> okay, good because it's, it, I'm getting more and more curious about that guy. <laughs> I'm told I'm told his basement is like uh, if you're a Hasselblad tech, it's like he. When they sort of wound down their Canadian operation, they literally just gave them all the repair equipment oh, and spares. It's just like, yeah, you want it? It's yours. I've yeah. seen it. It's just, it's uh, yeah, I've been, nice. I've been in there, and it is, it's uh, John. You can attest. It's it's an incredible uh, half warehouse, half museum, well, half laboratory. Well, we're going to definitely have to but, get but um, Hasselblad Joe on the show. These guys are extremely important uh, because we have also in Germany only one guy left 
who's uh, who's just really doing service and maintenance according Hasselblad um, specifications. For example, he's the only one who can uh, service the Hasselblad um, scanners. He's the oh, only one uh, who has the tools for it. And uh, I think it's very important to to that these guys are giving their knowledge to the younger generation too. That's, for example, what Camera Rescue in Finland is doing and uh, brings us back now why we want to have that magazine worldwide in order to get the community together. And uh, we really have something to lose uh, if we don't take care about it. Yeah, we, we see it definitely as a way to help preserve knowledge that is in danger of being lost. Um, yeah, there's there's a large spectrum of the articles in the magazine. I think we have... A lot of people in the 20 to 35 age bracket, a lot of mm -hmm. readers who are just, um, you know, they're starting in analog photography and they love it and they're very passionate about it and they want to go out and do. So um, we have articles that are kind of aimed more at them. We also have quite a few articles that are aimed at people who have been doing it for decades and are interested in learning more, you know, about the details of things, but also things that are just really to help try to preserve things and let people know, hey, if we don't find people to learn this craft from, you know, the people who are doing it right now, it's in danger of disappearing. And mm. um, just to point that out to the community um, in, in hopes that maybe we can, we can help the community become more stable. Well, I know that I'm definitely going to be uh, talking to the Applied Photography Program at Sheridan and see if I can't get them to su subscribe to uh, Photo Classic International. Because That's I'm great. very pleased to say that um, the darkroom is again in use by the Applied Photography Program oh. at Sheridan. Wonderful. Oh, so happy to hear it. Every time we hear that, we give a little cheer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't teach it. I actually work IT, but I always make sure I go down there and ask them, like, hey, anything do you guys need? I got connections. How can I help? Yeah, I think it's so important for all of us to do anything we can to support local people, programs who are interested in keeping film photography alive, um, getting more people interested in seeing that it's actually possible. We just had, we have a studio here also locally, um, Silvergrain Studio. Um, actually, the Silvergrain Classics is the, is kind of the family brand name of uh for all the stuff that we do for the magazine and the studio and everything and um the silver grain lab here we've been having some really interesting contacts with with young people um recently a young filmmaker just won um one of the special jury prizes in a local festival and he shot on 16 millimeter film and mavan was his director of photography um oh lovely yeah it was really it was a great pot project and um, there are also some other people from a, a university not too far from here at Mines who came by. And, um, well, actually, Mavan, why don't you tell that story? Well, first? yeah, it was very interesting. I mean, uh, the, the, at the moment, there is, especially among students, they are very interesting and they're discovering film. We have this Generation 2000. Uh, they were born into a digital environment and they just discover film now. And for them, it is an interesting challenge to try it and they just see that is the aesthetics and the workflow uh, in photography and in cinematography uh, unfortunately a lot of universities they just shut down their labs or they just 
sold their cameras, uh, especially the motion picture cameras, are in bad shape. They were not serviced anymore. Nobody used them. And a lot of professors don't really support them in the way. So we just got a call a few days ago. Uh, a young student just said, well, we would like to develop a Super 8 film. Can we do that with you guys? Because we don't know where to do it. So I just they came here and we developed their film and we just talked about the problems they had in their project and they want to do a mu music video now first in super 8 but then in 16 millimeter and we landed them a camera and a light meter and all the basics so um, that they can start with it because i think it is very important to do that this way yeah that's kind of the the interconnected series of stuff that we have here the the magazine is one big part of it. Um, and then we have the, the studio that's here in Bad Nauheim, Germany, which is quite close to the major international Frankfurt airport. And, and Elvis lived here. And Elvis lived here. Yes, very important. Just around um, the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, this is one of those things that I tend to want to forget, but Mavan is an <laughs> Elvis fan, so. Um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to comment because I'll just get myself in trouble. Um, but the other part of it is that through the, uh, through the studio, we do workshops and not only in Germany, but also internationally. And, uh, we're working on getting workshop partners in the United States. So far it's been in Europe. Um, but we are definitely expanding that and working on cooperations. So, um, that's kind of the third the third leg of the uh, of the silver grain family that we have going here. Well, Canada could also be an interesting exactly for photography for large format, medium format photography. That would be just few guys well, have ideas. We <laughs> definitely have a large and growing photography community here, at least in the Greater Toronto area. Um, we got several stores that support film photography completely burlington camera downtown camera um just to name two um they're the huge film photography community out in montreal quebec um right. we just started making contacts out there through uh jess hobbs yes yeah, a youtube channel that everyone should follow I, li I like what she's doing so getting back to the local community um we have the Toronto Film Shooters Facebook group, which is about 350 members now, Alex. Yeah, about that. Yeah, and it, it's we do regular photo walks, mm -hmm. and we've done sort of uh, they've done large format lug arounds. <laughs> I like that designation. That's so apt. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, I've been to one of them, and I realized medium format and 35 millimeter is more my uh, my cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> At least for the walk, yeah, I can totally get yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, but you have a tremendous landscape in Canada, so and especially nature, and I think that's yeah. especially for, for people from Europe, uh, kind of breathtaking just to do a workshop there. Maybe that could be an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're looking for partners. So yeah. uh, anybody who has a great idea for a partner workshop, then they can contact us. Okay, that's great. Yeah, we'll definitely look into that. See, Canada, I mean, being such a gigantic, physically large country, um, we have uh, the the both of our coasts. I think have a lot of excellent landscape photography opportunities. You get kind of in the middle of the country, and it's a little bit boring. But um, 
<laughs> well, it really depends. There are some actually some really interesting parts of uh, Saskatchewan. Hmm. Or even boring or even you guys, because you see it every day. But if someone comes from abroad, it's just kind of it's completely <laughs> it's different. Kind of yeah, there, there's something well, about the wide open spaces. I yeah. think it's very impressive to to Europeans because we don't really do very much wide open anything yeah. here. It's all kind of crowded. So well, it's a whole definitely. Well, that's the thing. If you were to come to Toronto, it's like, wow, it's sort of like a, a cleaner version of Chicago. It's sort of tilted about on an angle without guns. But it's like one of those, I tell people... It depends on who you ask. Well, yeah, it depends on the neighborhood. But by and large, it is a safe city. But it's like drive out of the city by an hour or two and then the landscape changes. And I, I do an annual photography retreat with friends in northern Muskoka and... Anyone from Europe, if they went up there, they would just be in total awe, especially if they're going to Algonquin Park for the first time. Uh, it, it, you'll just sit there going, you, you would just get lost in seeing all the photographic opportunities. And I think for Europeans, they also kind of forget, it's like Canada is big. Like I had a cousin from the UK who thought, oh, can I drive to Montreal for the afternoon? And it's yeah. like, uh, <laughs> Yeah, a lot okay. of people realize, you know, we are, what, physically about one and one and a half times the size of the United States with the population of California. Yeah. yeah. Concentrated I mean, along the border. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wide open spaces. That's something yeah. you guys really have a, a great deal of, I think. Yeah, but, <laughs> I mean, but, I'm from just over the border, I have to say, in Wisconsin. That's my where I grew up. So, so you understand our climate. Yeah. I do. I understand. Well, actually, it's mostly you guys. The snow that doesn't fall in Canada, you basically just kind of ship it and dump it on Wisconsin. So, <laughs> or yeah. Buffalo, New York. Yeah. yeah. And, and your point would be. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I love going out and photographing in the snow. Same yeah. here. I get some of my best photos in the winter. It's so beautiful. There's something about the when it's really super cold and a little bit windy and the snow crystals just fly through the air. There's something mm -hmm. that's so absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous about that. And then the you need a good light snow. beer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get that so that you have the white horse in the snow. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. Exposure. <laughs> Well, it sounds like uh, we're going to have some future cooperations going on here, guys. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Cool. <laughs> so are you guys very close to each other, or are you spread over the entire country? We're actually with very close to each other. We're all within probably about, in my case, I'm probably about a half-hour drive south of James and Alex, and John mm -hmm. lives is uh, he lives in Toronto. So he's about an hour's drive east. Or most sane people just take public transit because no one wants to drive into the city. <laughs> no. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm about 10 minutes north of James. Okay. Oh, 10 minutes. Okay. That's not yeah. a distance in Canada then. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So we're all concentrated in one area. Um, so it's sort of like in the Toronto area. So I kind of, when we do our introduction, I, the show introduction, it's like I, I sort of spell out, yeah, we're we're based out of here. <laughs> right. That's great. That gives you guys So when everybody teases the other, I got that camera, so let me see on eBay if I get it too. So <laughs> yeah. how do you know? A mutually supportive guest system. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
We're all self-enablers over here. Oh, my no gosh. Okay. No by November among the CCR gang. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear. And do you have a you have a lab around, or is that how that in, 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 in Canada? I mean, just uh, going to the right labs, or do you develop yourself? Or? We have about, um, well, we have, uh, I would say, two um, sort of very high-end labs, uh, one in Quebec uh, called Borealis, and... Uh, Another one in Toronto called Toronto Image Works, and they are, um, I would put them in the category of kind of elite professional labs. So if you're, uh, if, if you're looking for, you know, the highest quality um, processing, I, it would be those two labs. And then we have quite a few actual uh, local labs that slash camera, camera shops. Uh, there's a local one here called Burlington Camera. Uh, there's uh, downtown camera, which is located uh, in downtown Toronto, um, <clears throat> and there's quite a few, I think, uh, out west as well. Um, so there's no real shortage in in Canada. We don't have as many as we have in the U.S., but uh, but we've got a few uh, pretty good ones. And so, how long does it take? I mean, if I just let's say I, I just live in the forest and I just shoot film and I want to get my film developed, and uh, what is the average time so that Even I see most labs will do. Um, uh, so I think uh, downtown camera has gotten quite busy now. So they, I think, are they're running pretty much uh, uh, processing on a daily basis. So if you're in a rush, you can get it in there. Okay. Uh, now a lot of the labs, uh, like the smaller labs, they're doing uh, they're doing all their C40. Uh, so uh, let me step back. Most of the the labs, uh, other than the the one lab borealis no other lab is processing e6 in canada mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. every other lab is processing c41 and c41 is pretty much running on a fairly continuous cycle with the larger yeah. uh stores but uh a lot of them are still doing black and white uh by hand so you're probably waiting anywhere from seven to 14 days uh for a hand uh, developed black and white and usually within four to seven days you can get your c41 back Yeah, but E6 so, definitely takes longer. Yeah, yeah. six if you're going to ship it out. A lot of it's going to be mail order here. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the lab is located in uh, in northern Quebec, I believe. And uh, no, they're out of Montreal. Are they Montreal based? Okay, so it's not yeah. too bad. But uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, you're probably looking to uh, from coast to coast uh, to Montreal. You're probably looking at two to three days shipping. They're probably going to take a week to. Uh, process your film and then a few days to return to you so yeah, so self-developing would be a very very good thing uh, for you well guys. I, i'm labs and things. i process my own black and white and as for c41 i'm lucky that my closest lab burlington camera they do their c41 run on tuesday and since i'm self-employed I just go in, ask for process only, do not cut, do not print, do not scan. So they just give me the nags within about a half hour. And usually they'll they'll humor me because I know they're, they know I'm going to walk out with more than just that negative. <laughs> <laughs> they're not dumb. They know, they know, oh, Bill, have you seen what we've got in the youth section? Yeah. Oh. Can you spell loss leader? Yeah, they see oh, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it works for them, and and it works for me. So, uh, 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 and uh, a big trend of people who are 
really getting into having their own mini lab at home and all sorts of different variations. You know, we've got the the lab box that came out that a lot of people who are new to it are just trying out if they have like no space whatsoever. But even, you know, people are, are doing quite a lot of processing at, at community labs and things that are springing up. And I think that's it's such a great development for, for the international community that um, that's no longer one of those things that we really have to worry about you know, that the skills are going to be lost in the next generation. That's something that's really being passed on now, which I think is very cool. Well, the one big challenge is community labs are still kind of, it's not a lot around. Like there's Gallery 44 in Toronto, but it's really more geared to locals. Mm. Like I have a friend who belongs to him, but he 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 and his wife live in an apartment building. So, and they don't really like, you know, doing processing at home. So they go to Gallery 44 for processing and printing. And they got like 24-hour access to a lab. But if you're, say, visiting from Germany and you want to do it yourself, then it gets a little tricky. Or then it's like maybe you wind up like leveraging a network of photographers you know online and saying, hey, can I borrow a okay. Patterson tank? It's and it's exclusive the community then yeah yeah and that's and considering now that they're rolling out ct scanners for airport security we maybe have to rely on that much more and that's what's sort of frightening me if i were to say travel to europe and all of a sudden it's like oh yeah we're gonna bake your film Mm-hmm. No, Before it's scary to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, we already we already focused on that. We just started to contact uh, here one big airline, Lufthansa, and just to ask them about uh, how is it possible to travel with your camera gear in a safe way. And uh, I think that's something we're going to do next year. That's right. Uh, yeah, kind we're of starting a, a cooperation with with Lufthansa, and um, we're going to be doing a series of, of articles on exactly the problems that people are starting to run into again with these new CT scanners and just generally traveling with film. And even though film is definitely in the revival stages, uh, in different parts of the world, you run into different kind of, um, a different levels of willingness to accommodate film photographers. Yeah. Well, I've yeah. heard yeah. stories about Heathrow and that they're just notoriously, actually I say politely uncooperative. Yeah, there's, I think we just have to, (laughs) we'll save that for the article, but um, I think there are definitely some hotspots where people need to be aware of what can I do to be prepared to travel through here. Um, And also, I think it's interesting to know that different airlines will also provide you with different helps or or hindrances, you know, and um, you kind of have to be thinking about that when you buy your ticket. if I'm going to be traveling with a lot of camera gear, how accommodating is my airline going to be? And is it worth paying $50 less for the ticket if I'm going to, you know, end up with all my gear smashed, you know, this kind of thing? Um, Not only the film, especially if you have yeah. large format uh, equipment, you can't take it into the cabin. Uh, some of them are eight by 10 inch or whatever. So these guys have really to do a kind of planning if you need a tripod, all these things. So, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So stay tuned. We will be doing some articles on that, and I hope it'll be be a help to to the people out there in the community who are trying to get around with all the the challenges. But they were very very helpful about that, and I think they also try, especially especially those airlines who are 
are a bit more um, well have a better service. They just they they are just looking for exactly this type of uh, customer and passenger who just says, okay, uh, we want to serve them in the right way. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Definitely needed. Uh, I think to increase the awareness of all of that stuff going on. Because sure. I know going forward, say if I were to travel to Europe, say in two or three years, I am literally going to have to plan ahead, find labs that I'm not even going to like chance it. It's like, where can I buy film locally? Where can I get it processed locally? Because I just don't want to take a risk with the uh, CT scanners they're using for baggage. Right. Would you, would you fly via Frankfurt? <laughs> exactly. We can offer you an yes. awful lot of help if you're flying yes. through Frankfurt. Well, chance it. Well, again, if you're flying, if you're if you're if I'm flying Air Canada, Frankfurt's a uh, a European hub for us because it's sort of yeah. like mm -hmm. you fly into Frankfurt, then you kind of change flights from there. So, yeah. yeah, if I do if I do make my trip to the EU at some point, yeah, I'll probably. Be, rolling through Frankfurt, maybe. Yeah, say hello. <laughs> for you. Oh, of course. A lot of people do. We also, do. next to our developing machine, we have also a coffee machine, so we can drink a coffee. Oh, that's, Ooh, a, that's extremely important. He's on the next flight. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, aside from community labs, is there more like, a, like sort of casual, sort of I called sort of, yeah. Like I, I would say the Toronto Film Shooters Facebook group is kind of like a, a sort of an organic group. Are there, are there kind of groups like that locally within the EU where you'll have like a Frankfurt Film Shooters kind of like a, a group of people that will get together on weekends and go out and explore? Yeah, you do have that, especially there are, well, there are forums, uh, a lot of forums where people are just organizing themselves. They, uh, mm -hmm. Before we had um, a very, very successful system of photo clubs. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, the young generation is not really into that club thing anymore because um, for them, it is just too much. They, they want to be more flexible and um uh, especially you have to have a club president, someone is the cashier guy, the other one is organized, he's writing down. In Germany, it's all very complicated. So a lot of younger people... <laughs> well, it's kind of weird. The only thing. Yeah. Well, the weird thing, Marwan, I, I, I'm, I'm the co-founder and past president of the Oakville Camera Club, and I have noticed the demographics have steadily gotten older as time yeah. gone, went on. And it's not so much because of, say, the bureaucracy. It's more like people in their 20s, 30s, even even their 40s, they're just yeah. too busy with life. Mm. Like it's more of a North American. It's more of a North American thing than say the in the EU, where people have a more balanced view between work and leisure. But here, it's like everyone is uh, at the end of the day, they just don't want to deal with it. Well, that was one of the reasons why I started the Toronto Film Shooters Meetup was to get away from that club model where there's yeah. the president and the treasurer and executive it's like no i wanted to just have a group and again every single member of the uh, ccr team has helped plan and execute toronto film shooters meetups and i basically wanted a group that i could empower other local photographers who's like hey i really like this area of the city i want to hold a photo walk there like fantastic go for it yep 
Well, similar things are happening here in Europe too. Um, so it's it's kind of. Um, but on the other hand, what I also see with the uh, the photo clubs here in Germany is that um, as they got older, they are getting more and more into digital photography. You will be surprised when you're on an exhibition. When we were on the Fotokina and we had our stand there, and um, yeah, you just see a guy above 50 and he just looks, what kind of magazine do you have? It looks nice. And he just thumbs through it and says, oh, how much is it? And can we get it? And then you just tell him, well, it's about analog photography. He said, no, 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 no. I don't want that anymore. That old crap. It's kind of um, <laughs> that's, my thing. Well, that's yeah. weird because I get that with people in their 60s. Like they probably shot slide film by the skid load way back. Yeah. Yeah. In the seventies, but when they when digital cameras came out, it's like, oh wow! And I remember I was at a garden party once, where some fellow had a Hasselblad. He traded in for like a high end digital point and shoot, and he was like yeah. giddier than a uh, giddy as all get out. Because hey, look at what I can do with this! It's like you've been sold a, a pile of magic beans, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You, go. you could, could have gotten a digital back for that lovely camera. You, you, yeah. you just kept on trucking, but he didn't. He bought. He got a point and shoot. So yeah. enjoy your magic beans until it dies. Exactly, and you have to <laughs> or spend rendered that obsolete. Much for the next, yeah, the next. And, and, and especially then, and then just a minute later, a young girl with sixteen came, and she was just missing one issue. She said, "Do you have that here?" And he was so surprised. But that young thing just just reads mm -hmm. analog photography magazines. Um, I think a lot of photo clubs that lost a bit the reality, uh, the sense for reality, what's going on with the young generation that they want to experiment. And what we noticed also in our forums is that um, younger people don't like this, well, risen finger thing. You have to do it this and way. Like if they, if they like waving their, their pointer finger around in the yeah, air and yeah. saying, you must do it this way or you yeah. must do it that way. <laughs> For them, it's Get just an kind of experimenting <laughs> thing. They just say, you know, they, they shoot with their mobile phones. They shoot digital cameras. They just, and they shoot film. For them, it's just an uh, extension of, of their uh, capabilities to take photos. Um, it could be digital imaging, but it could be also analog photography in, in an extreme sense by just developing or uh, printing on fiber paper. Uh, it is for them, uh, they, they have a total different view on that. And a lot of old photo clubs, I think they just haven't got the, uh, yeah, the feeling for it. They can be a bit holier than yeah. thou. And I think that turns off a lot of uh, younger people. Yeah. I think it's also one of the things that I see as one of the few dangers to the, the film community worldwide is that there's there can be a bit of a rift between the older film shooters and the younger ones. Mm -hmm. um, I, and you can't really put the blame on either side exclusively, honestly, because the some of the older film shooters can be uh, they can be pretty condescending in in a really hard way. Um, mm. And that's no fun for the young film shooters. But then, you know, the young guys can also be uh, pretty disrespectful <laughs> to, to some of the older guys who really have a lot of knowledge that they could be passing on. And um, I think it's really, that's a shame when I see that kind mm. of thing going on in what is, in, I think it's really a very supportive community for the most part. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I hate to see it when, when you get those rifts, when people are not being, you know, supportive of each other in, in such a small community. We all need each other. So mm -hmm. um, it was also one of the things what we tried to get into the magazine was that we have young uh, 
people writing there, which are maybe close to the blogger level, where you say, we just experiment, we just try things out. It's not like we want to follow a rule, we just want to try it. On the other hand, we have people like Bruce Bahnbaum, who is definitely a, a master in what he's doing. And, um, and just getting that together gives is at the end of the day um, the right combination and and we should not really blame the one or the other it's it's just it's a combination of what's happening today uh, with hybrid technology scanning or inkjet printing but on the other hand also the tin type things you know it's we, ch we just should mix it and n nothing is better mm -hmm. or that. like we always maintain here on the show we only give our opinions and our views on how we like to do things in the cameras we like we aren't going to tell you that you're wrong we just encourage you to get out there and find what you like stick with it love it and screw everyone else <laughs> there you go that's, that's it in a nutshell yeah, find, find your happiness and whatever you do it's uh, that's just the bottom line and mm -hmm. it's Refreshing to hear that the, some of the young folks that you're uh, you're uh, 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 communicating with uh, that it's just really about photography and the medium. The medium kind of isn't you know it's agnostic. It's just whatever's convenient, whatever is you know uh, motivating you that day. Shoot whatever medium makes you happy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, that seems like a really good point to uh, end this off. It's been a rather long episode, um, <laughs> but an absolutely fantastic one. So thank you very much. It was great much. talking to you guys. Thanks so much yeah. for having us. Yeah. Um, that's it for me. My name's Al Cloak saying get out there and shoot some film. Just have fun. It's Bill Smith from the Classic Camera Revival. Stay cool and shoot tons of film. Yeah, I know it's another uh, blog's tagline. I'm stealing it for today. It's James <laughs> Lee. Uh, get out there and uh, shoot something square. <laughs> this is John Meadows saying, NASA thought it was more important to bring back moon rocks from the moon and leave the Hasselblads on the surface. Bad move. <laughs> Now we have a reason to go to the moon. There we go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>